Section 16 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prince and Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. The Loyalty of Lamoral Egmont. Presently he turned and mounted the little step leading to the low gallery which ran round the bookcases that lined the rooms to the height of a man. Prince put his hand over the backs of a row of ponderous books in gilt and calf, which dealt with the laws and statutes of the Netherlands. Then, not finding the particular volume he required, or losing interest in his impulse, he turned away and crossed to a rare bureau of Chinese work, the smooth brick-red lacquer surface of which was heavily encrusted with gold birds and flowers, and there seated himself and stared across the rich room to the garden filled by the warm light of sunset. His face was very grave, almost wary. His mouth was set tightly so that the lines of it were strained, and his nostrils slightly distended. Presently he took from his pocket a little notebook of scented leather and slowly turned over the vellum pages, which were closely covered with numbers and calculations. It was only lately that the prince had deigned to take more than the most superficial interest in the management of his vast affairs. He had been too great, too rich, too powerful for any misgivings as to the future, but recently it had been forced on his attention that his fortunes needed mending. His debts were enormous. Many of his estates mortgaged, half of his French lordships were not paying their revenues, many others were let at below their value. For fifteen years, ever since he had an establishment of his own, he had been spending money like water to maintain a life and a magnificence such as many emperors had not attained. His houses, his horses, his falcons, his kitchens, his entertainments were the most splendid in the land and famous in Europe, and even his enormous income had felt the strain of such lavishness. None of his services under Philip had been lucrative. His mission to offer the crown imperial to the new emperor on the abdication of Charles had been a costly honor, as it had been undertaken at his own expense and had meant the expenditure of a fortune. His implements from his present offices did not touch his outlay, and he was outside that circle of the region's favorites, such as the Spanish secretary Armenteros, who enriched themselves from public funds nor had he ever received any of the rewards and benefits which had permitted the Cardinal Granville to retire a rich man. His second marriage, put through in face of so much opposition and difficulty, had proved a disastrous failure. Anne, unbalanced from the beginning, was now almost a maniac, a disgrace, and a humiliation to her proud husband. Her dowry had done little more than pay for the wedding festivities, and the alliance with the German princess, her kinsmen, which William had hoped to create, remained more than doubtful. There were his brothers, Louis, Nasek, and at Spa, Adolphus, and Henry, who had just left the College of Louvain, looking to him for advancement. For John, who had set up his household at Dillenburg, was too limited in means to do anything. And there were his own son and the little daughters, responsibilities, burdens, anxieties, there were in plenty, and he stood alone to meet them. Certainly he was at present the most powerful person in the Netherlands, and had been since the fall of Granville, 
but he knew perfectly well that this power was principally rather in outward seeming than in reality, and that his position was more perilous than glorious. He did not trust Philip. He knew that monarch hated him, and was only waiting for the opportunity to hurl him down, and he knew Philip hated him because he feared him. Egmont had lately visited Spain, and there had been caressed and flattered and cajoled by the king into forgetting his grievances and those of the country he represented. Montigny and Bergen were ready to accept an invitation to Madrid. Horn stood out to trust his majesty, but William of Orange was not for a moment to be deceived, nor cajoled, nor lured. He knew that king, and he felt a great loneliness in this knowledge, a great sense of standing alone. Everyone seemed to be either Philip's tool, Philip's puppet, or else utterly deceived by a few sweet words from the royal lips. It astonished as much as it grieved William that Egmont should be so deceived, that Philip's kindness, Philip's presence, Philip's hospitality, should make the envoy of the wrongs of the Netherlands forget his errand, and return praising Philip's charity, Philip's clemency, Philip's generosity. The thought of Egmont's folly spurred William to his feet. He walked out of the room, frowning, thinking how was he, the only man who did not fear nor trust Philip, to act now. Supposing Philip forced the Inquisition, and in fury of his bigotry exterminated the Netherlands in seas of blood and flame, William stopped short in his pacing to and fro. You shall not, he said suddenly, as if he spoke to a living man in front of him. And indeed it was not difficult for the prince to conjure from the dusk the figure once so familiar to him, the meager form, the pallid face, the mild blank blue eyes, the projecting lower jaw with the full and tremulous under lip, the yellow red hair and beard, the figure of the man who with less brains than the meanest of his clerks, and more bitter, insane bigotry than any frantic devotee, imposed the terror of his rule over half the world. William could picture him as he had last seen him in the streets of Flushing. The pallid face livid, the lips twisted into a snarl that showed the broken teeth, the foolish blue eyes injected with blood, while he stammered in answer to the prince's serene and courteous excuse. Not the states, but you, you, using the first person as if he had addressed a servant. William had turned on his heel and left him, not even escorting him as far as the shore where he was to embark. They had not seen each other since. In spite of his constant promises, it did not seem as if Philip would ever set foot in the Netherlands again, and William would have as soon walked into fire as have gone to Spain. Yet the presence of the king was ever with him, an intangible foe, an all-pervading enemy. The prince did not know which of his servants, nay which of his friends, was secretly in the pay or service of Philip, but William had also been trained at the court of Charles V. He had his spies in the Escorial, his agents in Madrid, and he was better informed as to the king's doings than the regent herself, who was but a puppet in that vast game of triple intrigue and interwoven duplicity, that confusion of lies and counter-lies and manifold deceptions which the court of Spain called statecraft. William's thoughts went back to the same point again and again, the point that was indeed the center of his problem. If the king forces the edict against heretics, what to do? The final issue of slaughter, torture, emigration, 
and dwelt on utterable he saw with a vision unconfused. He foresaw, too, the ruin of all the great Flemish nobles who refused to be Philip's executioners. All stadtholders, all magistrates, all officials who refused to enforce the king's orders would be dismissed from their offices, probably imprisoned, certainly disgraced. Their estates would, of a necessity, share the inevitable ruin of the country. Their fortunes would be lost in the general bankruptcy. So much was obvious. It was obvious also that the only way to escape this ruin would be to submit to Philip, to support his policy, to fulfill his decrees, to obey him in everything with implicit loyalty. And what was Philip going to demand? These noblemen, of as proud a birth as his own, become inquisitors, executioners, the despoilers of their native land or the land of whose charters and liberties they had sworn to protect? Impatient with his own thoughts and with circumstances, William left the library and returned to his cabinet, where two secretaries were working by the light of lamps and red Florentine copper. William had scarcely entered when Lamoral Egmont was ushered into his presence. The prince took his friend by the hand, and greeting him pleasantly, led him into the outer chamber, already lit by tall candles and polished brass sticks, shining like pale gold. William had not so much of the count's company of late. Egmont was generally in attendance on the regent, who flattered his vanity by affecting to lean on his advice, and since his return from Madrid he had rather shunned the society of the prince, for he was a little uneasy, a little ashamed, at the ease with which Philip had lured him from his ancient allegiance to the plans and policy of his friends. He stood now awkwardly, like a man with something on his mind, his fine and gallant head held rather defiantly high, his handsome features flushed and troubled. The prince observed him closely, but was silent, waiting for him to speak. I have been with the regent today, said Egmont at last. She commands my assistance in the preparation of these wedding festivities. It becomes wearisome, he added, with some impatience. The prince made a comment. He was not very interested either in all these pompous feasts and tourneys which were to celebrate the marriage of the regent's son, whom Egmont had brought back from Spain with him, and the princess Maria of Portugal. It was an ill time for this extravagant and lavish rejoicing, and neither bride nor groom pleased the prince. Besides, the memory of his own costly wedding festivities was still fresh and unpleasantly vivid in his mind. The regent heard today from Spain, added Egmont suddenly. The prince looked at him sharply. Was it an answer to the protest about the decrees of the Council of Trent? he asked. I do not know. She would not make the news public. But I know the tidings were ill. The tears were in her eyes and her breath came short, and on the first excuse she could... She hurried from me and retired to her chamber, and later I heard the young prince, her son, say that if all the heretics were exterminated, God would be well pleased. He will be a rod and a scourge, that youth, remarked William. I never met with one with so much pride. So Philip will cut the Netherlanders to the measure of the Pope's yardstick? I do not say so, replied Lamoral Egmont hurriedly. Nay, but in your heart you know it, returned the prince. Now you are away from the seductions of the Escorial, you know that Philip is Philip. The stadtholder of Flanders winced and flushed. I see no cause to mistrust the king's word, he answered abstentedly. He spoke to me graciously with charity and kindness. My poor Lamoral, exclaimed William with a sarcasm he could not restrain. And could a little sweetness, the false Spanish honey, 
so easily lure you into the net? Do you really believe in Philip's caresses, Philip's promises? I have always been loyal, said Egmont. I have never offended his majesty. You have, we all have, answered William. Do you think he has forgotten that we forced him to remove Granville? Do you think he has forgiven the jest of the livery? The Count laughed. Why, I have dined at the regent's table in Camlet, Dublay, and the device, and she has smiled and flattered. She is Philip's sister, remarked the prince dryly. Trust none of them. The king is only waiting for his revenge. Egmont paled a little and looked at William uneasily. He felt himself again coming under the prince's influence, again affected by the prince's warning. He began to entertain a horrid doubt. Philip's sincerity, if that was a snare, if the king was offended with him beyond appeasement, his very soul shuddered before that possibility and what it meant. William saw his hesitancy and spoke again spoke earnestly and ardently as a man would to save a friend. Egmont, believe none of them, he said. The king loves us not. He has those about him who do not allow him to forget. Keep out of his power. Eschew his flatteries. Trust neither him nor his creatures. But Philip's blandishments were still too fresh in the count's ears. He was too secure in the consciousness of his own loyalty to give more than a passing heed to any warning. Much as he was impressed by the force of the prince's strong character, he reassured himself by recalling the regent's favor, the king's promises of benefits and rewards, and he was a man hampered with debts, with daughters to dower presently, a man who needed magnificent splendor, the atmosphere of courts, a man ductile under the flattery of the great. You are too prudent, too cautious, he answered, with a vehemence to cover his momentary hesitation and alarm. I cannot overstep loyalty. You sail near to defiance of his majesty's authority. If the king forces the inquisition, what will you do? Asked William suddenly and abruptly. Egmont flushed and stammered. I, I must stand by my duty. It is true these heretics must be outrooted. I am treating them with severity. You will stand by the king? Said the prince briefly. What else? Demanded the count. I am set aside his... Majesty will not push matters past prudence. Do you call it prudence if he insists on measures being forced on the country which will mean every inhabitant being put to the sword or flying overseas? That will mean the ruin of every trade, every industry, every business. Nay, said Egmont, the heretics will come back to the true church. William smiled at the weakness of this. If Philip were to send every soldier he possesses to the Netherlands to force the Inquisition and the decree of the Council of Trent by the sword, not one of these people would change his faith. You speak as one too favorable to heresy, cried the Count. I speak as one knowing well these heretics and the power of the faith they hold. Would we could extirpate that cursed faith, exclaimed Egmont impatiently, which, like a foul weed in a fair garden, has brought confusion and misery where there was order and peace. Uh, you are a good Catholic, said William quietly, and you too have tried to put a bridle on men's consciousness and whip them to the mass. You have hanged and burned to clear her safe from Flanders, but you will never succeed, Count Egmont, and all your efforts will not save you from King Philip, loyal and pious as you are. You too are a good Catholic, answered Egmont, Ah, yes, I am a good Catholic, replied the prince indifferently. He turned aside to snuff the candles that stood on the low table by the heavy carved fireplace.
Egmont was silent. With every moment, with every word, these two, once so inseparably friends and allies, were widening the distance between each other. It was evident that in the struggle between Philip and William for Egmont, Philip had won. The stadholder of Flanders stood firm to church and king. He had been bought, as Granville had always said he could be, by a little flattery, a few promises. But still the charm and power of the prince held him. He regretted the old confidence, the old alliance. What will your highness do? he asked, a little wistfully. The prince smiled and, turning towards him, pressed his hand. Whatever I do, I think I shall stand alone, he answered. You will remain my friend, though, Lamorel, he asked. And his dark eyes were eloquent with affection. Always, replied Egmont. Come what will, I do not leave my friend so easily, prince. We will talk no more of politics when we are together, and so we shall keep our conversation sweet. The times are difficult and bloody, and it is well to forget them, replied William. They spoke together while on different topics, their hawks, their hounds, their debts, the last extravagance of Bread Road, Montagny's approaching marriage, and the arrogance of the young prince of Parma, Margaret's son, and the severe piety of his bride, the Portuguese princess. Was Count Horn of your mind, he asked, as he stood with his guest on the great stairs, about trusting Spain, he explained. Ah, yes, said Lamoral Egmont. And Hoogstraten? That I do not know. They parted affectionately, and William returned in his palace, which, for all the magnificence and luxury and splendor, and the moving to and fro of servitors, was somehow lonely and desolate. The prince mounted the gorgeous stairs slowly, with his eyes downcast, as he gained the first landing, he raised them to see the figure of his wife. She was going up the stairs before him, half crouching against the wall and dragging at the tapestries. Her heavy, handsome skirts trailed loosely after her. Her white headcloth was soiled and disarranged. She was sucking a stick of sweet meat, and her pale, flaccid face, clouded with an instant expression of dislike and annoyance, touched with fear, and she observed her husband. He glanced away and turned across the landing to his cabinet. She kept on up the stairs, muttering to herself, and looking back at him with a half-snarl like a malignant animal. So now the prince and his wife met and passed. End of section 16